श्री गुरु वैष्णव गुरु परंपरा की जय गौर प्रेम नंदे सो इवनिंग एवरीवन एंड वेलकम यू बीन हियर अ कपल डेज नाउ एवरीथिंग ऑल राइट गुड गुड सो वी हैव बीन डिस्कसिंग फ्रॉम श्रीमद् भागवत एंड वी कंप्लीटेड द थर्ड चैप्टर ऑफ द फर्स्ट कैंटो इन आवर लास्ट meeting so tonight i'll just ask for questions you can ask about that material which we've been going over for months or any other related or unrelated material any questions yes golok i was just wondering um if there's any reason why some people have the attraction to krishna or some people have the attraction to gorana or some people have mixed or some people there is any particular reason uh-huh well that's a interesting question and there's different ways to think about it answer it and it brings up the kind of a perhaps a perennial question as to whether one's spiritual uh, destiny is such as it is predestined or whether it's something that is um a matter of choice and evolves um now when we talk about spiritual destiny or perfection in the context of bhakti we uh, acknowledge a kind of a a bit uh the transcendence has a variegated nature that um there are different degrees of of perfection it doesn't necessarily make one better than the other if we look from the objective point of view we may say one is a deeper tra- penetration into transcendence or that let's say it affords greater intimacy with the godhead we make for example two basic distinctions within that those many other distinctions the two basic distinctions are that within a theistic um notion of vedanta there is love of god in reverence and awe and there's love of god in intimacy and within those there are other uh subtle distinctions as well those are two major categories and then there is a kind of a non-theistic notion of transcendence it's also included within our um teaching hmm? by non-theistic um i refer to a and of a monistic um rest if you will hmm? eternal uh rests and quietude um that would be considered something that is attained by a mixture of bhakti or devotion and knowledge 
as opposed to bhakti unto herself, devotion unto itself for its own um, sake. So there's a, a range then, hmm? kind of a monistic uh, rest from the oppression, if you will, of the mind's demands, the call of the wild in the form of the senses in relation to sense objects. We're all kind of suffering from this. Hmm? And so to bring that to an end would be to remove the negative kind of influence which obscures our nature. Hmm. We've identified with matter, and as it moves, so we're moving, or so it appears, when actually we're still, in one sense, in a witness, hmm. and at the same time turning on the whole show of, of material nature. We're kind of the soul of nature, if you will, especially in human life, this comes to bear. We're self-awareness, self-consciousness, not just consciousness, but some awareness of the fact that I'm a conscious being comes into play. So we turn on the material nature, so to speak, just like a person, like a viewer turns on the television, but the television may take over the viewer's life. So material nature um, takes over our life, we identify with it, and as it moves so to speak, and transforms and changes and so forth, we think that we are undergoing the changes and that's troublesome. We can't get our feet on the ground, so to speak. The chairs are always being, always moving. <laughs> and then one time you're out, <laughs> like in the old musical chairs when we didn't have computers and we did things like that. And then <laughs> then if you didn't get to sit in a chair, you know, by the time the music was over, I think it was if you didn't get a chair, you were, you're out of the game. So then... Death, I guess, and you, but then you start again. So, so, so at any rate, some philosophers have reasoned and reasoned well that the movements that we, uh, material nature, if you will, the constant transformation that it undergoes under our influence, and as much as we ignite it, so to speak, by 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 will, um, it. Um, uh, those, those those movements that take over our life cause us to identify with the movements. This is troublesome, and if we can come out from underneath that, we'll be peaceful. Hmm? The reason that moving is problematic, moving is, 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 if you're happy, why move? If you have desire, then the Buddha taught you're going to suffer. Hmm? So that's certainly true, desire in relation to things that don't endure, for an enduring being is 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 a cause of suffering, or one who wants enduring happiness. Of course, the Buddha reasoned wanting enduring happiness was a problem. Hmm? But when you come to Vedanta, then, which is uh, distinct from Buddhism, we find there is a positing on the behalf of the Vedantins, the mystics, of an enduring happiness. Hmm? And... Shankars, for example, and the Ramana Maharshis in more modern times and so forth, um, could compare notes with the Buddha and they could demonstrate that the idea of an enduring self and enduring happiness is not the cause of misery, 
But the idea of enduring happiness in relation to things that don't endure, that's a cause of misery. So the Buddha kind of gives, in our estimation, an introductory idea. This introductory idea is something like this. You hear sometimes speak of no self, the idea of no self, speaking about it in a positive way. The, the experience of dismantling the false self, the egoic conventional self that I'm American, I'm a Cuban, I'm an Indian, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a man, I'm a woman, and, uh, and all of the, the, the whole sense of I derived from my sense of, my false sense of my, because nothing really belongs to us. What I think is my, my country, hmm? my family, it's not mine as much as I can't keep it. Hmm? There's an identity that's derived from that sense of my, and can't keep that either. It doesn't endure. So the dismantling of this by right action, hmm? by, by, by morally and ethically sound action, for example, in the Buddhist school, uh, I think he called it, isn't it, right action? Hmm? Right livelihood, something like that. A kind of, a, in the yoga terminology, would be a yama-niyama, appropriate uh, do's and don'ts, an ethical kind of a system. Um, ethical principles, the details of which are determined in different times and different circumstances hmm? as things change. Hmm? What, what now becomes uh, uh, an ethical or moral rule or law hmm, is somewhat relative to the changing nature of the environment, society, and so forth. Hmm? The ethical moral principles, this is uh, this should be embraced. This is then to live in, in, in a righteous way, let's say. And so, um, in, in what's righteous in a general sense, everybody universally accepts that that, for example, to to be honest is virtuous. Even the thieves want to divide the loot honestly. Hmm? So it, it it pervades. There are certain ideas moral ideas, if you will, that actually are rooted, the ideas ontologically have the ontological root to them. Hmm? They're universals. Hmm? That the details of which, what it means to be more honest at one time than another time, may change, hmm? may, may, may be altered, or, and so on with other, other kind of moral principles. So this right livelihood to keep this, um, it causes, it brings about a kind of a, a peaceful mind because when you do the wrong thing, your mind is actually disturbed. Hmm? You may cheat somebody, but it, 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 it doesn't, doing an honest day's labor, they say, for example, it'll make you feel like good about yourself. Hmm? I did a good thing. Hmm? So when we do the right thing, when we act correctly, morally and ethically, we don't necessarily have anything tangible to show for it that I earned this much as a result of it necessarily. There may be, you know, sound and ethical investment schemes where we can make money and so forth. But overall, the gain is a, a feeling, uh, kind of better about oneself and a feeling, uh, a, a little bit of the more of oneself. Hmm? 
that arises out of sacrificing, out of, out of controlling, if you will, the mind in the sense, which might take us to do just any old thing, whatever we feel, for example. Now, with, the, with this right, right livelihood in Buddhism, with the yama, niyama, and yoga, and the walking, hmm, if you will, uh, that, that cor- how we walk corresponds with our ability to sit. So if we walk a particular walk, that will make it difficult for us to sit with a peaceful mind. So there's a certain kind of walk or way that which we conduct ourselves, which will foster sitting, which requires that the we, we, we're now working with the internal organ, the mind, and seeking to control it. If we can control it in terms of how we walk and not allow the senses, for example, to do things that we have heard or we know intuitively are not good, not in our interest, um, not in the interest of others, and and so on. Um, then when we sit in a more sophisticated way, this is the techniques then of meditation, we, um, we uh, hone that one... Mind in this now, bhushaka yanantascha. The mind is going in so many different directions. Hmm? So the idea of meditation and the idea of right livelihood and so forth is really to um, to, to 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 awaken inner life, if you will. Hmm? So the beginning of this awakening of inner life then is very profound because it involves the collapse of this <coughs> conventional sense of self. Hmm? material ego. It collapses. I mean, it's overwhelming. You can think about it, how much we are invested in our present sense of self, knowingly and, and almost unknowingly, without thinking, spontaneously, hmm? without any calculation, we're working for our self, so-called self-interest, hmm? in terms of our material sense of self. We're automatically and spontaneously just moving in that direction, Constantly, hmm? our whole life is is about that, and we can talk about it, theorize what the problems with it, and so forth. Then to start to move back from it systematically through a spiritual discipline is is difficult, but but we, we're 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 thoughtful enough. By good association, we get inspired. Hmm? We take up the path. Um, still, to dismantle this uh, false ego is to, to declare, you know. To condemn him to death is is difficult, hmm? and, and we we'll, we 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 will know. Here's the theory. If I kill this false self, hmm, my life will be better. But it's a little bit theoretical, and so we 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 have reservations about that. We believe it, but then to put it into practice, to die, in order to live, die to the false sense of self, in order to have another life. The other life is theoretical. Hmm? Um, we may it may we it, it comes into the practical for us in the person of a saint, a realized person. So we we see it's not just as we see it. We think we see it hmm? embodied. The sacred texts speak about it. We see it seems to correspond with us with a particular person, teacher, the guide, and so forth. So combined with these two things. The sacred text gives the theory, for example, and the, and the saint, the sadhu, 
personifies that we have courage then to go forward with this. Hmm? And we we may first think, yes, I'll do it overnight. <laughs> we find it's a long haul. Hmm? And so we, we have to learn to go about it very practically and and uh, sometimes with a little give and take. Sometimes we have to live you have to feed the ego a little bit and, and then starve him, you know, come around the other corner. <laughs> hmm? Get him from the you know, behind, you know, you have to attack from all sides. So at any rate, this is, this is yoga, right? This is meditation. So, but my point here is this, that when this conventional sense of self, this material ego or identity based on attachments and a false sense of my dissolves, this is an overwhelmingly profound experience how much we are invested in that. Not only are we invested in our particular egoic sense of self, like male, American, white, or whatever it may be, we're invested in the very um, spirit, if you will, of that ego, an enjoying spirit, a taking spirit, hmm, that has been with us forever. Many, 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 many births. Since the time without beginning. So this is not easy to uproot. The teachings are powerful. They're profound and they can stop us in our tracks suddenly. And we can think, wow, yeah, I should be doing that. And learn about it and try to practice and so forth. And we should, but it's not easy. So when we are successful in dissolving that ego, this is an overwhelming experience. And so some mystics, upon the dissolution of this ego, are so overwhelmed by it hmm, that there's a huge pause, if you will, of ah, hmm, and a huge, in a sense, that there is no self. In other words, the false self has been dissolved. Hmm, that's so overwhelming. So there's a sense that there is no self. Hmm? So some teachers will speak about no self. They have, to one extent or another, the no self experience. A lot of them are pursuing the no self experience, and maybe they're they're fairly well along or somewhere along the path and dismantling it and so forth. But the point of the Bhagavad and the Gita also is that there's there's a progression from there upon dissolving the false self. Like the Buddha will dissolve the false self, then nirvana. Nirvana means literally a blowout. So it really is a negative, if you will, theology. I mean that in a positive sense, but it's it's about dissolving hmm, desire and the self that's born from that. It's a total preoccupation, for example, in Buddhism. Hmm. And, 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 and so when that's done, hmm, there's a big relief. Ah. Oh. That false sense of self that I was laboring hard to try to preserve and make enduring, which when it wasn't uh, in terms of its particulars and so forth, it's all over with now. And so the 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 experience, if you will, is kind of like a no experience, like a contentless experience. And that doesn't make a lot of sense, I know, but a contentless experience is a way of describing um, something like nirvana. 
the idea of contentless uh, experience. Because, after all, people do talk about nirvana. Hmm? The Buddha said to have attained it, he talked about it. Someone, somehow, there's some experiencing going on. Although they play down the experiencing part of it to the point of saying there is no experiencing. So we, we call it a kind of a contentless uh, experience. Um, it's kind of like if we move from Buddhism to Vedanta. So, so anyway, the idea in the Buddhism is there is no self. There is no transcendent, um, ontologically uh, ontological reality of consciousness. Consciousness in Buddhism is also here today and gone tomorrow in a sense. Hmm? The mind endures after the death of the body for the Buddhists. They have a paranormal, if you will, kind of idea but not a supernatural idea. We would distinct, dink, distinguish the paranormal from the supernatural. Hmm? Um, in science, they would, they would probably acknowledge, if it could be demonstrated to them objectively, the paranormal as a, super, as a supernatural. We make a distinction in our school. The paranormal is a subtle kind of matter it operates on different laws. There's mind stuff that operates on different laws than um, the laws that matter uh, functions under the jurisdiction of. There's some overlapping, but there's some difference as well. So beyond that is the self, consciousness. So Buddhism doesn't recognize that self. It's overwhelmed with the dismantling of the, of the self and by a particular methodology also. So the methodology by which we go about dismantling this self is going to determine the, the nature of our experience. We could dismantle it in such a way as to go beyond merely dismantling it hmm? and experience what's posited, for example, in the Bhakti school, that there is a transcendent self. There is enduring consciousness. And like I say, if we look at Vedanta and the, and the yoga schools hmm? compared to Buddhism, the Buddha said the idea, the very idea, that there is an enduring self and enduring happiness is, is a chasing after something that can't be had and it's going to cause you distress. But Shankar, uh, for example, the great uh, the monist and uh, other great yogins and so forth in the yoga discipline, they have posited on the basis of sacred texts, they've posited a transcendent self, an enduring consciousness. And they're not unhappy as a result of it. Hmm? The Buddha should compare notes with them. Hmm? And, and, because they're as happy as the Buddha uh, or, or more to sit peacefully with, noth- with no necessity. Hmm? Hmm? So that really speaks loudly. Hmm? If the Buddha, what the Buddha was saying was entirely true, and that about the nature of transcendence, or or that there's, he's not dealing with it. The Buddha is not dealing with that aspect. He's kind of dealing with the lower aspect, which is very important, and he has a good method method for dissolving that false sense of self. Hmm? Um, but comparatively, uh, the yogin acknowledges an enduring self, hmm? or let us say. He acknowledges an enduring singular self, one self. Hmm? And I am that. Hmm? 
consciousness that's that's substan- substantially different, if you will, from matter. It's kind of a substance dualism. Hmm? It may be talked about as an absolute um, kind of uh, monism hmm? or a what would they call it? A monistic um, idealism. Hmm? Monistic idealism would, would be the idea that there is no matter. There's only consciousness. Hmm? That's a little hard to swallow, but um, but there are some mystics that, that say that. And it's kind of, interestingly enough, the opposite of Buddhism. Buddhism says there's only matter. Hmm? And then these these particular Vedantins, the monists say there's only consciousness. <laughs> so, at any rate, they they posit then a universal self, Brahman, and they say you are that, I am that. And again, while positing that and arriving at that, if you will, experientially, as they do, they're not unhappy. So this speaks to us loudly if we look at it as a progression, if you will, of within transcendent experiences. If we the Buddhist transcending the false self. Hmm? Now, then in the context of transcending the false self, we come in touch with the universal self of uh, consciousness and that underlies all of matter's movements and we are fully identified with that without any distinction between myself and another. Hmm? Hmm? And that's so powerful that I may think or philosophize that, that, that matter doesn't really exist. This is kind of a monistic idealism, if you will. Hmm. Now the Vaishnavas in the Bhakti school, they go on from there and they say that, the, that we are all units of consciousness. That's a fact. And we all have that in common. So we're all one in that respect. We're all consciousness. But as they, in their school, hmm, the bhakti school, from the very beginning they've posited, their text posit, that there is oneness of all beings on the platform of pure consciousness. And there is a simultaneous distinction For example, I can say to you, this is my body, right? I can also say this is my hand. It's my body, but it's my hand. If I talk about it as my hand, there's some distinction between my hand and my body. Hmm? You follow? It's my body, one way of looking at it. Another way, it's my hand. My body's over here. And it feeds my body, for example. It scratches my body. Hmm? Hmm. So in a subtle way like this, they acknowledge a distinction. Now, without acknowledging this distinction, you don't have a doctrine of love in the full sense of the term. Because love requires two, becoming one in purpose but not without doing away with one another. If you and I love one another, then you and I become we. 
we is a kind of a dynamic unit. It's not that you dissolve and I dissolve. And hmm? There's love in Buddhism. There's love in monistic Vedanta. The love is a giving up of what is not love. The exploitation of the world, the taking, the my, hmm? that created a false I. Hmm? But then... That's, this is all, let's say, kind of a negative theology. It's doing away with the negative. Now there's the positive. Hmm? Um, is there a center to give to, actually? If, it, if nothing is mine, does it belong to anyone else? Hmm? Um, something like that. So they've identified the Vaishnava as that, that center. We call that Krishna, for example. Hmm? And uh, so it's a doctrine of love where there's enough distinction between the Atma, the Self, and the Paramatma, Supreme Self, for there to be kind of waves of, of interaction in love, a coalescing, a union, and a, and a separation, and a union and a separation. That's what we find, what we call Leela. Hmm? So Leela is, is movement. It's not stillness. Hmm? So once, first there's the stillness, right? Hmm? If you're happy, why move? If you're fulfilled, why move? Sit still. But there's another kind of movement that's not based on any lacking. We move because out of out of a feeling of incompleteness. I got to get up and do something. So if I add things to my life, I'll feel more full. Hmm? So we stop doing that. We sit. We become peaceful. But if we become very deep, we enter very deeply into transcendence, we find there's celebration hmm, of fullness that causes movement. Hmm. Krishna kind of depicts the idea that Brahman, the Absolute, is so full hmm, that it starts to celebrate its fullness and dances. So it's like in ordinary life, we might just dance out of exuberance, not out of need for anything are we moving, but out of, oh, I'm just so full, so happy. I'm dancing, I'm singing. Hmm? So this is a different kind of movement. Movement out of necessity, that brings us under the law of karma, because we have a sense of necessity, so we take, and then we go, stop that, we sit peacefully. But if our particular discipline brings us not only away from our false self, not only in touch with what we have in common with every other living entity, uh, that we are all consciousness, hmm? but also brings us in touch with a fine and subtle distinction between our self as a spark, if you will, and the fire, hmm? the sun and its ray. The spark is the fire, but you know it's different than the fire too, something like that. It's one thing to get hit by a spark, another thing to get thrown in the fire. Hmm? So there's this, the spark is nothing but fire. Hmm? So, and if the spark was in all respects the fire, hmm? if the atma was in all respects the paramatma, then why is it in this predicament of illusion to begin with? The fact of our illusion hmm? Although it's an illusion, we are not what we think we are. Hmm? There's a real illusion. Hmm? What we think we are is false, but there's a real illusion. Hmm? 
So the Godhead never comes under such an illusion. Perfection never comes under. So there's something within us. Hmm? Call it for uh, perhaps our, 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 our finiteness, our smallness, although we're of the same quality. It's a spark of consciousness that allows us to, to be in the face of material nature, matter, the objective world, overwhelmed by it. We're the subjective component, if you will, matters the objective component of our material existence. And the objective component, matter, can take over, so to speak, our subjective life. We lose sight of ourselves and think that things are more important. Hmm? The objective world is where, where, where fulfillment lies, investing ourselves in that. We think we are that. We start to philosophize. There's nothing, no difference between mind and brain and, and so on and so forth. And it gets pretty sophisticated, but, but we would call it pretty bewildered also. When the, when the human being is posited, for example, by some people in the scientific community, be, community to be nothing more than an automaton with no will. And obviously there's sophisticated arguments for um, determinism against will or compatibilism and and, and these are difficult things to sort out and so forth. But we will go, our ideas with the sacred texts and a discipline of yoga, an objective subjectivity, if you, with you will. Yoga requires quite a bit of objectivity, detachment, hmm? to stand back from the thing and, and apply it on oneself and then experience what the rishis, what the sages have experienced. And so we say, relative to the different disciplines, there are different degrees of penetration into transcendence. Hmm? There's the ending of the material ego. There's an ending of the material ego combined with a, with a sense of eternal being, oneness, unity. And there's those two plus a, a, a subtle distinction hmm? that makes for ongoing kind of interaction, if you will, hmm? that makes Brahman, the absolute alive, moving, hmm? not out of need, but out of ecstasy, something like that, and to participate in that. So, then within that, hmm, there are different possibilities for participating, hmm? different degrees of intimacy. You may participate in reverentially, hmm? or in intimacy, like in the, in, in the Krishna Leela, where Krishna has his friends, and the, you know, the gopis, his lovers, and so forth. And, and the, the, the nature of that reciprocation is has been compared to the kind of intensity with which we we love in this world. A parent loves their child. The uh, teacher loves the student. The student loves the teacher, um, for example. Um, friends love friends. Lovers and beloved love one another. And there, these are. If we study these psychological, you know, states, if you will, there are nuances. They're different. Love of a friend is different than romantic love. Parental love is different than fr- friendly love, and so forth. So. Rupa Goswami, has, uh, one of our great teachers, has spoken about this whole idea of individuality within unity and that a loving reciprocal dealing between the absolute and the individual self in, in terms of psychological kind of love um, experience in this material world, to speak of different degrees of intensity and intimacy and the possibility of that with the absolute. So your question is, is that already determined where you will rest, hmm, ultimately, where you will arrive? 
Is that a predetermined destination that some will go to just have the nirvana experience, some will have the Brahman experience, some will have love and reverence or and intimacy or different degrees of intimacy, right? Hmm? This is your question. Hmm? So, one way to answer that is that where you will arrive is somewhat relative to the discipline that you take up. But what will determine the discipline that you take up then? Hmm? We'd say, well, they are different agents of divinity, and depending on which one we come in touch with, we'll be influenced by that, and we'll go in that direction. Hmm? But as I have been speaking about it, I've tried to make clear the idea in Vaishnavism that the Buddha's experience is not a finality. Hmm? There is more to the picture. Hmm? The monist's experience is, is a development from there, but it's not a finality. There is more to the picture. There is more, more, more in terms of possibility, hmm? prospect, hmm? if you will, for the soul. Hmm? So we would say that if one comes in touch with a, a, a theistic trans, uh, uh, transcendentalist in the school, for example, of bhakti, then by that contact they have the prospect of experiencing a fuller measure of transcendence. Um, you know, that's our language. Everyone thinks their path is the best, but then you look at them objectively and you, and, and you see hmm, what works for you. Is, is, the, is the mere distinguishing of the false ego better than having a relationship with Bhagavan? We think so. We can speak about it objectively, but if one is predisposed by association, for example to go in a certain way, it'll be hard for them to hear that hmm? and to identify with that. We identify with our theology and our philosophy because, not because of reason. No. We're predisposed to it because of previous association in previous lives and in this life. Hmm? And then we reason in a particular way about it. And that reason, no reasoning is complete, so the reasoning makes sense to us because of a non- or a transrational reason, a certain kind of sangha, association with a certain kind of saint, has given us a sangskar, a tendency to think in a certain way. And, it's, and, and so in this birth, we have a certain kind of mindset, psychology, that's conducive more or less to bhakti or to another tr- yogic tradition and so forth. Hmm? So, so uh, different agents of divinity with different levels of understanding, if we feel that the, 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 the bhakti school is a more com- comprehensive understanding, as we do, that's why we're here, obviously, hmm? then um, is our destination within the absolute in terms of a relationship with the absolute. How is that determined? Is that our choice? Is that something that doesn't exist now but will exist later? Is it predestined? How does it come about? Hmm? Well, first thing is, it's not something that doesn't exist. In other words, it, now. It's something that's enduring. Nityasiddha Krishna Prem Sadhukabunai Shravanadi Sudhachite Koraye Udai. Krishna Prem, which means a certain kind of intimacy 
with Bhagwan, with the Absolute, with Krishna. Krishna, Krishna Prem Nitya Siddha. It's eternally existing. Sadhyakabunai. It's not something that's manufactured by practice over time. Hmm? The practice is, involves Shravanadi Sudha Chitte. Sudha Chitte. Chitte means consciousness, and Sudha means like pure. So cleansing the consciousness through hearing and chanting, for example, about Krishna, as we do, Kodaya Udai. It causes this to awaken. Hmm? So it speaks of it as kind of in a dormant state, but existing. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu has likened it to an inheritance. So it's not inherent in one sense in this, but it's an inheritance. Hmm? Uh, so now let's say I'm a young boy, young man, and um, I uh, um, don't know who my parents are, and so I'm street street boy, and then people find out who me find me. Maybe I've got amnesia or something. Let's say, and then they they trace it out and they find out. Oh, you're you're from this family actually. And your parents died, you know, so many years ago, and actually you're wealthy. You've got an inheritance, hmm? and now when you turn 21, you know it's it's all going to be yours, something like that. So then. My position, by knowing that, theoretically hasn't changed, but it sure has changed a lot, <laughs> right? At least I'm at ease about my future security and so forth. I might even be able to get a loan based on you know my inheritance and and so on and so forth. So um, this inheritance is kind of the idea here is kind of that this. Destiny is our fullest prospect and potential. As a unit of consciousness, we have the potential hmm, to uh, live in the realm of pure consciousness and in, 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 in in enter very deeply there. Hmm? That's a potential. Hmm? And that how that will come about by good association, hmm? by contacting, coming in touch with a proper agent from that that side and so forth, learning the disciplines and so on. Hmm? So it appears now then that by association I will get it. Someone comes as a bearer of that news and has the exhibits that attainment themselves. We hear from them and we tend to develop as they develop in terms of their relationship. So we may look at it as, well, that's... It happens by association, hmm? by association. But then, who who arranged for that association for this particular for you in particular? Hmm? We think that we're going to find the guru, but this verse says guru finds us. Krishna says, the Brahman, the Brahmite, Jeev, the Jeev, the soul, the individual soul is wandering throughout the universe through different species of life, transmigrating, reincarnating, and so forth. And in one life, one human life, becomes fortunate by getting good association. Hmm? This is called luck because it's not causal. It's not under the realm of karma. A sadhu is moving, but not under the influence of cause and effect of karma. I did something, now I owe something. He or she is moving freely liberated, has no 
nothing to accomplish, hmm? but the very nature of his or her being is that, that it, what something is being accomplished, and that is the sharing of their being with others that overflows onto them. Hmm? And that sadhu's movement is all under the direction of the uh, spiritual kind of shakti, sarup shakti. So why that particular sadhu, you come in touch with that one? This is Krishna's arrangement. So it could be said, the background behind the association that we have that seems to be the cause of our developing in a particular way in most cases hmm? is, is the will of, will of God. Hmm? You cannot say that in the mind of Krishna, for example, how we would, he would like to accept service from us eternally and love from us is not already thought out. Hmm? But for us to think it out, feel it out and go there and so forth, that's another thing. It's a kind of a compatibilism again with regard to determinism and free will. God wants us to want. To love him, something like that. You can't force love and so so there's a so anyway, so so we we, we think like this then, that, that it's it's predetermined in one sense. It's an eternally existing condition. Hmm? reality hmm? but it has not it has not it's not a, your experience at present hmm? just like we'll say on a lower level and from a monistic point of view the self is pure it's satchitananda it always was it always will be nothing to be attained sometimes they speak about it like that nothing to be attained hmm? just remove the false covering Hmm? You're already enlightened. Some people go so far as to say, there's nothing to do, you're already enlightened. It's kind of, you know, wait a minute, there's a lot to do, actually. <laughs> Here, you know, this is an intellectual kind of sleight of hand by which people think they've become enlightened and, and uh, pose themselves as teachers. It happens. Um, so, But there's truth to what they're saying, too. They're, you're already sat-chit-ananda. But to realize that, and then to kind of grow that sat-chit-ananda, if you will, to cultivate that into all of its uh, potential, hmm? a potential arrived at by association. Hmm? Hmm? If we if we if we if we associate with a, 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 a sadhu hmm? Hmm? from from that experience, then that will. That, that this is kind of a grace, if you will, a gift, then. Hmm? Then an inheritance. can hold it back, or it can be, can be given. Hmm? It's yours, but... Hmm? At the same time. So, <laughs> so this is, this is the, the, the idea. So the experience, then, will be almost like I'm choosing it. Hmm? Because the experience is that I'm starting to experience what feels right for me, what's natural for me. Hmm? I'll, I, 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 I'll think, yes. Uh, it's like we, we, we talk about, sometimes the term is used, going back to God, back to Godhead. Probably had a magazine with the masthead, back to Godhead was the title. It doesn't mean you were once there and you, you left there. That doesn't make any sense. You can't be perfect and then become imperfect. 
but and there's no beginning to time here, so we are imperfect since time. That's a whole other discussion. But and how to attain then perfection, realize your perfection, perfected potential. Um, well, um, at any rate, in, in 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 the course of doing that, going going to God, going back to God, it's like remembering the experience is like it's like like going home because you 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 you're becoming all that you can possibly be in potential. So you're feeling most at home. You're feeling like I'm in a comfort zone. This is fam- this feels familiar. Hmm? I this is what I am. Just like the more you move away from the bodily identification to identification with the atma, the more you the more you feel at home. Hmm? The more you're away from that, you feel in a foreign land. You're, you're kind of uncomfortable. How do we, how does it work? And how do I make my make my uh, go about my life here as an existential crisis? Hmm? That's what human life is. It's an existential crisis from beginning to end. Yeah? <laughs> This is this is how to end that you see, and understand and imbue that you are an, a, a unit of enduring existence that feels comforting. It feels like home, home, home-like, hmm? and so that much more so when the specifics of your individuality within your oneness with the absolute starts to come unfold, starts to awaken, if you will, through bhakti. Hmm? Then you um, feel at home, where you belong, something like that. So at a certain point in our bhakti, it may come early, it may come later, depends on our previous life. Someone may come and hear a certain sentence. Someone may read, oh, my friend, that book, for example. Yeah, I feel like that. That's a good thing. I like that. Be a friend of Krishna, like Prabhupada had that particular sentiment, or sentiment of a gopi, for example, and so on. So... It feels like a choice. You're, consci- you're making it. I want that. Yes, yes. But there's a background to all of that. So it's it's predetermined and it's and it's to be determined at the at the same time. So these things transcend logic. We try to speak about it in a logical and reasonable way to satisfy the inquiring mind. You know, it needs the re- reason needs to be satisfied. But if we can satisfy it, then we can. We can actually get through through the reasoning to the self and and bring it out. This is the idea. Does that help? Mm-hmm. All right. What's the time? Long answer to anything else. We've got a few minutes. Anything on the basis of that, Doctor? Did I bring up any question for you? Uh, it's a difficult question. How do you prove to someone that God exists? How do you prove that God exists? Uh-huh. What will you, of course, the question would be, what will you accept as proof? Hmm? What will atheists accept as proof? Um, if we want to prove, you say, you say, prove to me that God exists, then I have to say, what will you accept as proof? You say, well, God appeared before me or something like that. Uh, but how will you know then? I prove for God appears before you and says, I'm God. How do you know it's not an apparition? How, how do you, how will you know? Hmm? If you say, well, um, okay, um, show me a miracle. Okay, I'll go in a general sense. You say there's a supernatural 
I say there are only natural laws. I'm a physicalist. So prove to me that there's a supernatural. So uh, what we accept is proof. Uh, I suppose uh, breaking of the, you know, the laws of nature, and that's what Christians use as their argument. They say Christ transcended the laws of nature. He rose from the dead. And they say, well, you know, we didn't see it. We weren't there. We didn't have, you know, it wasn't didn't happen in a laboratory. So um, and so on. But but you know, one of the reasons Christianity has never become popular in India is because they couldn't sell their miracle there because it's a land of miracles. <laughs> so all kind of yogis doing all kinds of things. Um, all the time, they don't get a lot of uh, publicity and so forth. But uh, you go there and uh, check it out. I mean, uh, you know, there, there, there's a history of, 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 of such. But whether you believe it, and uh, you know, even if you see it, you may think, well, I don't know, is it a double-blind, you know, test? What? So, what will you accept as proof? Here's what we say. Look, we say to you this. Let's start with the soul. Forget about God for a minute, okay? Let's say, does the soul exist? Okay? Which is, the atheist would say no. Right? There's no such thing as a soul. We say, look, we're not positing here anything that you have no experience of. What we say is that consciousness is not material. Consciousness is ontologically different than matter. It's supernatural in a way distinct from the natural world. I don't believe that. Tell it, you know, I don't believe that. That's a belief. We say, no, that's not a belief. We are defining consciousness describing consciousness in a way that differs from your description of consciousness. Hmm? Yeah, but my description of consciousness is based on science and, 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 and facts, empiric evidence. Yours is just a belief. No, no, no. Wrong. Hmm? Your belief that consciousness is a natural phenomenon, that it's an epiphenomenon of the brain, for example, hmm? that mind is 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 just a brain, or it may be have have emerged from brain, but it's caused by brain, which is matter, so it's material, hmm? and it appears for a while and, and, and goes away. It ha- it's not coming from outside the system, hmm? which is a closed system hmm? in classical physics, but they think it's a closed system. <laughs> But there are very, very good arguments against that idea of the clo- these days, the closed um, uh, causal closure and so forth. But anyway, so we go in that direction. We say, yours is a belief. Naturalism is a belief. Physicalism is a belief. There is Consciousness is the mystery of the day, of the hour, of the decade, of the century, of whole of human existence. The fact that we perceive, that we experience, it's one thing that we, you know, perceive something and we, we can say, well, you touched that, it was hot, and then there was a corresponding nerve ending in the brain, 
If I touch that, you'll feel hot or something, uh, however they do it. And there's a correspondence. Hmm? But correspondence and cause, causation, are two different things. Hmm? And there is, in, today in neuroscience, for example, or in philosophy of mind, consciousness continues to be the ever-elusive subject, the hard problem, as Chalmers call it, Australian philosopher, uh, of consciousness. Why is there any sense of me in there experiencing anything? You know, the experiment, the Mar- Mary's room, I think they call it, right? She's in a room, she's colorblind, Mary. She has no experience of the color red, for example. So we teach her everything about red. It means the refraction of light like this, this many photons arranged like this, that's red. You know what red is, right? Hmm? But because she's colorblind, she knows everything about red except, oh, red, that we experience. Isn't that, you understand? So why, the why of that experience, why there is that experiencing and that sense of an experiencer and so forth, this is unknown. It's absolutely unknown. Hmm? It absolutely, you can theorize, they, they do, they theorize, theorize pretty well about it, physicalists, you know, they, but it's elusive. The famous um, uh, philosopher of mine at Berkeley, John Searle, I've quoted this, I've said this before, in a, in a not uh, too distant uh, interview, was asked about consciousness, and he said, look, if we could just get rid of all this religious baggage, from so many generations that causes us to you know, think that we're more than what meets the eye here, hmm? uh, then I think you know, we'd be at a good starting point and within a thousand years of science, we'll be able to demonstrate that consciousness matter. You know how long that is? Not a thousand years, but a thousand years of science. You know how quickly science is developing in terms of finding out things relative things about nature and so forth, all so many things finding out and much of it at the cost of finding out the self that we talk about that is possible by another science, if you will. So if you want to be objective, then we ask you to undergo this experiment. Detach yourself from matter. This is our theory. Consciousness is transcendent and it's causal. Hmm? You say, well, you know, how can there be something it's different from matter that's causal, that's causing matter to move. We maybe feel like that, we may think like that, but that's just an illusion. Hmm? If, it, if, it, if one billiard, board hit, billiard, billiard ball hits another one, well, we can see it, we can, we can measure it. Hmm? So if there's something in there called a soul, then we should be able to measure it. But we're saying, wait a minute, it's not a billiard ball. <laughs> This is the we posit them. It's, it's of a different nature. So how it moves matter is not measurable in the same way hmm? that that how one material force or physical force moves an, another physical or material object and so forth. Hmm? But we have a theory. Theory is again that consciousness is 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 substance substance substantially different than matter. And it's causal. Hmm? And now, the experiment to arrive at that, to demonstrate that, is 
that you start to separate yourself from matter. Well, how do you do that? Well, there are many things that we're attached to that we've added on to our lives. and We start to detach from them. Hmm? And what happens when you start to detach? When you become selfless, so to speak, instead of selfish? Do you feel smaller? Do you feel that you have less? When you actually start to become selfless rather than selfish, you feel bigger. You feel there's more to you. Hmm? It's a qualitative more, not a quantitative that you can measure. But there's a sense, I'm more. There's, more, I, I understand more. I know more. I, I can. I'm too. I'm attached to the thing. I'm too close to it. I can't see it for what it is. Hmm? So we're asking for some objectivity here. You are going to enter the lab. <laughs> we're going to experiment on you. Hmm? And that's what yoga is. And so you are going to start to separate yourself from matter, from your attachments. You're going to step back from them. Hmm? And there's a method to do that. Hmm? And as you're successful in that, you start to experience subjectively, admittedly, that the more of yourself. But there's some objectivity with which the third party can look at that and say, there does seem to be more there. Because he or she is living a more fulfilled life with less, with less things. Hmm? And may, may even be content for, for, for days on end, hmm? months on end, 30 years in the cave he lived. I mean, you can't just dismiss that. You may not be able to understand it entirely. But if you want to understand what it is, it might be better to talk to the person that's doing it. Hmm? And, to, and when his subjective experience, when he says, this is my subjective experience, and it posits all this metaphysical realities, and so he goes, wow, we don't want to, you know, I don't know if we want to accept that. Maybe we should give it more credence. Hmm? He was able to do that, and it's no easy thing. Hmm? He's the one that was able to control the mind. So I try to sit now, control the mind, and meditate. Hmm? You know, he was able to do that with such, with such proficiency. So maybe he's a better, maybe his the metaphysical ideas that he posits, that he experiences, that we cannot objectively verify, maybe there should be given more credence. Hmm? Objectively, we can see he's more fulfilled than your average shopper hmm? <laughs> and your average scientist and your average atheist, for that matter. And he's morally sound, completely. He doesn't take from anybody. He identifies with everybody. The sorrows of others, the Gita says, he identifies as if they are his own. Hmm? Compassion is an overflowing. Hmm? This person has something. So we have our experiment. You've got yours. You're still looking for consciousness and trying to prove that it's matter. And you're really invested in that. And for good reasons, because you found basic forces of matter through objective scientific experiment that that, are, that, that tell you something about how the world works, and then with the help of technology you could create different things that seem to make life better or easier, and so you're really invested in this idea. And then there are, is a lot of religious baggage that people carry around that's troublesome, superstitious, and so forth. But the heart of religion, if you will, 
which is mysticism. Hmm? There's no baggage there. Someone asked, is there a kind of secular meditation we could take up? And I was saying in one sense, in other words, without all kind of religious baggage, I say meditation is without religious baggage. Hmm? It's essential spirituality. Hmm? Morality, which religion seeks to um, bring about, hmm, is accomplished automatically within mysticism. Now, it's not so easy to become a mystic, so we say you should become moral first in the context of pursuing mysticism and so forth. But he or she, the mystic, is moral. Therefore, I say this. Science, which where atheism derives its its uh, you know its uh, strength from, if you will, was born as a Christian. Modern science was born as a Christian. Science is not really born as a Christian, but modern science. In other words, what is science? If science is the hallmark of science, is the control experiment, right? Well, everybody does that. Everybody make everybody engages in the controlled experiment to one extent or another, without any laboratory, without even thinking about it. In other words, you do something, it hurts you, you step back from it, you experiment with it, you know, and you find out objectively how that works. And so everybody, every human being on some level is a, is a scientist and makes decisions based on empiric data that they gather by doing different things. It's no big, you know, huge, wow. But then to hone that, hmm, that's modern science. And to hone it, originally, the idea of honing that was done to prove the existence of the glory of God. So modern science was born as a Christian. Hmm? Gradually, though, it became an ag- agnostic. Hmm? As science started to leave us People wondering, where's the God in all this? And then you got, well, maybe maybe a deism. Deism means, well, God started the whole show, and now he's not involved, because it's a closed system, so there's no like miracles coming in or anything. There are the laws of nature, and that's what there are. But beyond that, there's the God who started the clock. Hmm? This is a typical example of deism, and it's going around. So Einstein was like a deist. He didn't want to say there was no God, but he didn't see any any influence of God in, in, in the world, for example. Hmm? So that's like, now we're moving away from the Christian idea of God, hmm? moving towards a more agnostic position. And so from agnosticism, it's mainstream, I guess, science has become atheistic. Hmm? So from Christian to agnostic to atheist, what's the future? Mystic, that's the future. This is where religion and science meet in mysticism. Hmm? Hmm. So there are there is objectivity to mysticism, hmm? and there is also a underscoring of the importance of subjectivity, subjective experience. Science appears to want to dismiss the value of subjective experience by way of saying, well, if we can't prove it, Objectively, by third-party experiment, you know, and so forth, then why should we, you know, believe it? But we don't live our lives like that. We can't prove that we exist. But we live our life as if we do. 
So subjective experience is pretty central to the whole human life. Hmm? So we 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 want to we we have some objectivity within mysticism in terms of going about demonstrating and experiencing, but experience is subjective. Hmm? What we will experience, hmm? we have an objective method for going about that, but we value ultimately this subjective uh, experience of of self as a transcendent um, ontological uh, reality. Hmm? Um, And and so what we find in modern science and atheistic conclusions drawn from modern science, science is really, how do you say, neutral. I mean, and then we interpret the, the facts in a particular way. Therefore, we call it metaphysical naturalism. <laughs> it's a total belief system, if you will. Hmm? But in that belief system, in it's almost an attempt to do away with the subjective element to deny it, at least not to give it ultimately. But they, they tried that. <laughs> they tried to say there is no difference between mind and brain. Hmm? But that just is so not only counterintuitive, it's just so, it's so highly illogical. It's, Ill, it's illogical to say one thing and act otherwise. We don't act like that. Hmm? We act like we have a thought and then we... We follow it out. Hmm? That consciousness, something which you kind of we kind of like locate up here, is causal. Hmm? So to say one thing and to act differently, you can't even even to say that. To say, we say that consciousness is is brain. It's 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 not causal. It's this is all involves consciousness. You know, at the root. You can't deny consciousness because consciousness is required to, to deny anything. Hmm? I mean, this is the base. This is the, you know, it's, it's the root. This is a basic tenet of Vedanta. So it's become highly, highly illogical. Hmm? But then we think, but if the data shows it's true, what can we do? Hmm? But if data doesn't show it, you might like it to, and there may be moral reasons for that. Hmm? rather than intellectual or scientific reasons, you may not want to be a dependent entity. You may not want for there to be ontological, you know, rooted truths as to how you should behave and conduct yourself. <laughs> that's animal. That's our kind of going towards animalism, that sense of freedom that I'll do whatever I want, whatever I feel, and so forth. People suffer, of course, from a lot of religious baggage and superstition psychologically, and they're really against that idea. So there are different reasons why people subscribe to atheism. It's not really just scientifically anything that's been demonstrated and so forth. It's an argument, and we have an argument too. And it and, it, and it, it's beautiful in the sense that it, it really confirms the objective aspect of human experience, the, ma- the world of matter and things and so forth, and forces, physical forces, Hmm? And it really affirms sub- the subjective reality. It doesn't try to 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 how they say um, it starts with an R to um, reductionism to reduce consciousness to matter. Hmm? No, it acknowledges the two: consciousness and matter, their own realms, 
And it also explains the mystery, the science, of how they interact, not perhaps to the satisfaction of uh, scientists today. But um, um, anyway, this is where I would go with that kind of argument. It's reasonable. And it demonstrates that their argument is not, at le- in the least, any more reasonable. Hmm? So, if, like atheists like to posit, that they want to function on the basis of reasoning, hmm, then they have to, to be fully reasonable, they have to acknowledge that their belief, their atheistic belief, is, is really a, a belief. Hmm? Their belief in naturalism is a, is a belief system. Hmm? And they may think it's a better belief system, has more empiric data to support it, or they may think like that, but we tend to disagree when we look at two things. One thing at consciousness hmm, and at the origins of life. These are totally unsolved uh, mysteries. And you kind of can't, and it kind of just like, in between there's some evolution, so, okay, you know? And then we posit based on some kind of evolution that's going on, what happens in the beginning and, and then this consciousness that appears, according to science, at the kind of end of evolution, human, hmm? the self-consciousness. This is the one end, and the other end is the origin of life. These are total mysteries, but we find some facts that seem to substantiate the idea that there's some evolution going on by natural, well, selection. You know, some, some, some. But it doesn't answer these two ends of the spectrum. Hmm? So then, to just on the basis of that, to posit and think, well, we're, we're getting there. We'll figure that out. It's a blank check. It's about. It's a religion. Hmm? Really, so does that help? Okay. All right. So we've we've gone a little over our time limit. Oh, Primanand.